Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Carol, as many of you know, is a nationally known gerontologist. She serves as chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging and is executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and has spent many years working in this field with seniors and caregiving and senior issues. And uh, speaking of seniors and senior issues, uh, you show me a senior and I'll show you someone who worries about and thinks about Alzheimer's disease. And in just a few minutes, Carol, we're going to be talking with Sonny Kleinfield, a New York Times reporter, uh, whose piece about uh, following a family of a woman diagnosed with Alzheimer's, uh, just an incredible story. Well, you know, I, I saw the story when it ran in the newspaper, and it was it was astounding. Uh, just in the the way that the that he told the story, um, and the way that Jerry Taylor and her husband, and Jerry is the woman that has Alzheimer's, uh, reacted to that diagnosis. And I was I couldn't help but compare it to my own family and our reaction, and and the family the reaction of many families that I see in our our caregiver work. So I, this was just too important, and it was too well done uh, not to take advantage. And we should say that Mr. Kleinfield has won you know the Pulitzer Prize, and for anybody who who was glued to the New York Times during the 9-11 crisis, uh, you saw some of his work uh, in that time period. Amazing, amazing um, As writer. well with some of those stories. And we were, you know, we, we can't wait to talk with him right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. But why don't we start out with that same theme, looking first at uh, Alzheimer's. Well, in the science section of the New York Times, as we were, this New York Times is kind of the theme of the day, uh, they actually had on April 30th, not too long ago, uh, just in the science section, what is Alzheimer's disease, sort of the, the no, basics, the, the 101 or the 411. Um, and and I thought it, it might be helpful for, for people who aren't as familiar or who you may have some misconceptions, and that includes people that are dealing with Alzheimer's disease now may have some misconceptions, but it is a, you know, it's not just about forgetting things. It actually affects multiple parts of the brain. It has a progression, and so it'll get into executive function, decision-making. It'll get into sequencing, um, you know, and, and it moves through. And, it, you know, it used to be it was a diagnosis upon death, when I started in yeah, the business, to cut your brain open. yeah, the only way to tell you had Alzheimer's was to cut your brain open at, at, at death. So we at least they it. waited till you died. Yeah, at least they did. Um, it's a little different now. They, they have a series of, of memory tests and cognitive tests, and the counting back from seven um, on the mini mental status. Uh, the brain scans and spinal taps can, uh, you know, provide some pretty strong evidence of amyloid plaques, tangles in your brain, and the structure of your brain. Um, and, and so they can do a lot more with some other tests. And, and we've talked to some researchers who are looking for a simple blood stick, right. you know, just a prick on the finger, and someone will be able to tell you your risk of Alzheimer's. And, and that's, it's coming. And it's coming, and it's not going to be that far off. But what I think one of the most common misconceptions is that, like, 
my mother has Alzheimer's, so that means I'm going to get it. Most people think that it's hereditary, and really only 5% of the population suffer from a hereditary form of Alzheimer's. And in most cases, it's everybody. I mean, the families that I know that we've worked with, it's grandfather, father, kids, brothers, sisters. It's everybody in the family um, suffers from Alzheimer's disease, and it usually starts a little bit earlier. Um, But we really don't know what causes it. We do know that... What's good for your heart's good for your brain. And so now the big thing with Alzheimer's is, you know, exercise and diet and environment and, and you know, doing as much with your brain as you possibly can to build up those reserves that supposedly will give you more time. Uh, the Alzheimer's has to cut through all of those brain cells. And the more you built up the plasticity, the the ability of your brain to learn new things, the more you've built that up, that's sort of a, a barrier, a protection that keeps you going longer. So we need a whole cadre of little rats uh, who get Alzheimer's and figure out how to fix it. Well, they use a whole lot of little rats. Yes. You know, the the bad thing is, is that there really isn't a good treatment. And what people may not realize is there are only five medications on the market right now. And it's not that a cure. Are, that are currently used to treat Alzheimer's, and it's not a cure. It's simply to increase functioning. And so drugs like Aricet and Exelon and Amenda, those are names that are very familiar to those of us who have families that have Alzheimer's. And these are drugs for, that were developed like in the 1980s. Um, it takes so long to get medication to market that we don't have a lot of new medications even coming along because the drug tests have failed. And you talk to, as I do very often, some of the uh, well-med physicians who see older people, who see people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, uh, and they discourage people from getting on those drugs uh, because very often it's a false hope and a false sense of uh, belief it's going to make a difference. Well, and it, and it only makes a difference in about a third of the people. Um, I know we had Dr. Harry Croft, who's a psychiatrist here in San Antonio on this show a while back, and he was talking about for those that do start it, you know, that you, because for those that, that it does improve functioning and it doesn't work forever, there may be some, con- there, there may be uh, some truth in the fact that if you just suddenly stop it, that not that it makes them worse, but they go back to the level they would have if they had never taken right. the drug. Right. So it could be a pretty precipitous drop in functioning. So the medications are something that you're going to have to talk through and work through. And there's side effects. And there's side effects. And, 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 you know, that's what's so wonderful about the article that, you know, we're going to be talking about later in the show is that there's not a lot of hope. On the medical side, there's not a lot coming down the pike. While there there are some uh, some promising, um, I guess, some promising practices in terms of delaying the onset or or improving parts of your functioning. Um, but there's nothing wholesale cure. There's none of nothing like that coming now, down. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. We'll be talking in just a moment with Sonny Kleinfield, a New York Times reporter. Pulitzer Prize winner, outstanding writer uh, who has done an incredible story. If you didn't see it, page one of the Times jumped to a double spread inside uh, dealing with a uh, woman and her husband. Uh, She was diagnosed with early onset uh, Alzheimer's. Here's a question for you. What are the 16 things (laughs) you would want if you were uh, diagnosed with dementia? Well, kind of in keeping with our theme today, there was a a posting from a woman who actually works as a dementia care worker. So she's in an Alzheimer's unit. Sees it every day. Sees it every day. And so people ask her, you know, are you afraid of Alzheimer's? And she says, no, because as Jerry Taylor in the story about her, you know, demonstrates, she sees a lot of joy and a lot of 
a lot of um, happiness and there, you know, life still goes on when somebody has dementia. But she did make a list of 16 mm. things that, you know, she would put, would put up on her wall if she gets dementia that she said, she said, I would want my friends and family to embrace my reality if I think um, my husband is still alive or I'm visiting my parents for dinner, just go along with me. It'll make me happier. Uh, she says, I don't want to be treated like a child. Please treat me like I'm an adult that I am. Um, and help me enjoy the things I've always enjoyed. Uh, so if I like to exercise, read, and visit with friends, help me find a way to continue doing those things. Or in Jerry's case, bird watching. Or in Jerry's case, bird watching. Um, ask me about my past. Show interest in the oh. things that I do know about instead of quizzing me. You know, because how many of us are, have seen someone go up to somebody and go, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And, you know, and we quiz the person with Alzheimer's. Make uh, them feel worse. Yeah, make them feel worse. Um, if I become agitated, take the time to figure out what's bothering me. And that's so true. You know, I think about my mother-in-law and her telling us that she was going to have 63 babies uh, when she had gallstones. And so she was communicating something, and we did not get it off the bat. We should have she been was asking, right on. why do you think you're having 60? Right. Well, we did ask her that, and she couldn't really <laughs> explain it. But we should have stuck with it a little bit longer. <laughs> she says, um, make sure there are plenty of snacks for me in the house. I get angry now when I'm hungry, so please don't make me go through that if I have dementia too, <laughs> which I was, you know, I'm on her side. Please, just feed me. <laughs> don't talk about me as if I'm not in the room. Um, if you if you can't take care of me 24 hours a day, it's okay. Just find someone to help take care of me or find a good place for me to live. But it's not your fault. That's a really good point, isn't it? Well, it is a good point. And, and giving your the family permission, I've already told everyone in my family, they have total permission if I get Alzheimer's. And I said not even in the best place. I just need adequate care. You know, it doesn't have to be the Taj Mahal. And you mentioned you've said to your husband, Ernie, don't expect you to be as Well, and I'm going to do the same thing. Right. I'm going to provide him with that same level of <laughs> yeah. care. Um, See ya. <laughs> but, but she says, if I, if I have to go into a dementia care unit, please visit me often. Um, and I know that we try to visit my mother often in the place that she lives. Um, and if I mix things up and I don't know your name, please, you know, don't take it personally. Which, wow. or, yes. you know, if I'm asking the same question over and over again, don't take it personally. Um, if I like to carry things around, will you please make sure they get back to where they belong? <laughs> Which I love because, you know, so many times people with Alzheimer's will carry things around. And forget where they put it. She says, don't exclude me from parties and family gatherings. Remember, I still like hugs and handshakes. Um, and, you know, probably the golden rule for her was treat me the way you would want to be treated if you had Alzheimer's. You know, it's interesting. Judge Karen Crouch, who we've had on the show with her husband, Gerald, talking about caregiving, uh, her mother has uh, Alzheimer's, and she takes her everywhere. She goes to parties. She goes to events, and uh, she's treated as a part of the event. But, you know, and I, I met somebody at a clinic opening that the husband had Alzheimer's, and she'd brought him to the opening. And, you know, it was one of those kind of radar things that goes off in your head where you think, well, that was an odd response that I got from the husband before somebody came along and said, you know, he has Alzheimer's. And then I went, oh, because it was like, what did, you know, what was that? Right. Which is something that was a little bit off. 
But I so admired the fact that, you know, she wanted to come to the clinic opening and she had brought him and he had food and he was smiling and, you know, there were some friends with her. So they had people to keep an eye on him. So they had a good time. He was had and she had a good time. It didn't prevent her. You know, the last one that this dementia care worker wrote in her wishes for if I get dementia, she wrote, I may not remember it, but please remember that I'm still the person you know and love. Oh, I like that. You know, and so underneath it all, sometimes uh, we can't see the person that we used to know. We used to know, um, but we have to hold on in our hearts that they're still in there somewhere, and that's the person that we're caring for. It's not that disease on the outside. Well, that's good stuff. We're going to talk in just a moment to Sonny Kleinfield, but before we do that, uh, we have time to slip in the answer to this question: a uh, question <laughs> which which adults need. The measles vaccine. So, very much off topic. Yes, <laughs> but, um, but it's an important if topic. If you were born before 1956, before they had a vaccine for measles, you're probably safe because there was such a huge epidemic of measles, you don't need to worry about it. Um, if you were born after 1963 and you don't remember getting the vaccine, uh, which I remember having the three-day measles, so I'm safe. If you don't remember having measles or getting the vaccine, it won't hurt you if you get the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine again. You could have a blood test. You could find your old medical records, but I just thought that was interesting. So born before 1956, you're covered every Everyone had, had the, yeah, everyone had had the measles. Me. Well, we're going to talk in a moment to Sonny Kleinfeld. I'm Ron Aaron, uh, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Cheryl Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. Caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. That's WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. Well, we are really looking forward to this conversation with Sonny Kleinfield, a member of the New York Times Metro Department Investigations and Projects team. He's going to join us on our Caregiver SOS On Air Hotline. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and he has written a very powerful piece about uh, the journey his mother uh, and family took involved with Alzheimer's. So, Sonny, thank you for coming on with us, and good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I had mentioned to you off the air, and I want to repeat it, you have written some really powerful, long-form pieces over the years that deal with all kinds of issues. Uh, But I have to think that writing about your mom uh, and the experience with Alzheimer's had to be one of the toughest. Yeah. um, And, you know, the main thing I wrote about was really I followed another woman I got to know and followed her. And I thought the, the neat part was that she had agreed to let you do that. Yeah. Um, exactly when um, the editor I work with and I did 
discussed ideas. This was an idea he threw out, and while it you know immediately seemed something would be interesting and valuable to do, it, it dawned on me that you know who, who would want to do that story with a reporter? Um, you know, it's, it's somewhat different when somebody has um, adjusted to the disease and, and had it for a while, and even then, it's, it's a it's a issue that not too many people want to talk about. But the idea of um, getting to know somebody and following what decisions they make and um, what goes on in their life soon after they receive the diagnosis seems um, an unlikely possibility. And um, I just got lucky that um, two months after we came up with the idea that I was able to find um, some Jerry Taylor who just happened to be unusual in how she reacted to issues, particularly challenges in, in her life, and, and she was just, you know, primed to do something like this. Well, well, I have to say that, you know, as a New York Times subscriber, when the piece came out in the newspaper, and I saw, you know, the front page, and then it how the, the length of the article, the full depth of the article over the two inside pages, you know, I was... I was surprised um, that an article on Alzheimer's, you know, having such an in-depth look at someone. And then after I read the story about Ms. Taylor and just her reaction, because, you know, I should mention my mother currently has Alzheimer's and she's good solid mid-stage in her Alzheimer's disease, that, you know, it was it was very powerful the way that she reacted. And so I was wondering if maybe you could just let our listeners in a, a, a little bit, you know, about what was different about Mrs. Taylor's reaction to that diagnosis of Alzheimer's, as well as her husband's? Sure. Well, you know, the more common uh, reaction is, you know, Alzheimer's and pretty much most um, mental illnesses carry a real stigma. Um, and much of society looks on people um, with a mental illness or somebody who gets Alzheimer's, um, you know, with, with, I guess, with suspicion in a way. And, and tend to, you know, immediately write them out of their lives and, and look at them as, you know, damaged or broken people. And so um, it's very common um, when somebody receives a diagnosis to conceal the disease from people around them, including people very close to them, relatives, and even their own family. And uh, it's even common for them to deny the, the diagnosis to themselves. have a disease, and um, they go as far as they can, um, trying to um, counteract the impact of it and, and seem as normal as they can. And there's this tremendous fear because of the statement that they'll be written off and friends won't entice um, them to things anymore, that um, they'll, they'll be treated as lesser people. And Terry Taylor is different in that, you know, she openly said that, that she doesn't react Alzheimer's to work and 
engineer that you know, develops in stages and you know, it varies enormously in, in the impact on people, it varies enormously in the pace of progress. And she had no idea how quickly it would move with her, but she knew that there was some period of time when she would still be very much high functioning, very much in control of her life, very much independent. And, you know, it, it could be months, it could be a year, it could be years, it could be half a decade. Idea and her um, conclusion that she was going to live life as fully as she could while she had this capability, and she was going to spend as much time as she could doing the things she wanted to do, and she was going to do what she could to um, conceive of strategies to um, dampen the impact of some of these symptoms. And her husband um, you know, initially had a much different reaction. He was, he was very depressed and withdrawn when he. interesting about that is that th- that would be a somewhat I want normal reaction if somebody had a terminal cancer diagnosis. In the husband's reaction. Well, I, just the, the, the general reaction is I'm going to live life as fully as I can and my family's going to accept this and we're going to live as much as we can right now because we don't know what tomorrow looks like, but let's make today count. And somehow the Alzheimer's diagnosis that we don't, you don't normally get that kind of reaction uh, for Alzheimer's. Because and, and I don't know if it has to do with, you know, it's in cancer, it's attacking the body versus Alzheimer's is attacking the brain, which affects personality and, and uh, you know, general decision making capabilities. Um, but but it's very different. It wouldn't be unexpected, though, for somebody with another terminal illness. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, you know, it's very interesting you know, why that is. And, and there's probably various components to it. And I think part of it is just that. Um, you know, cancer is viewed in a different way by society at large, you know, particularly more recently. Um, you know, so, so many cancers now are, you know, are prolonged if they're, if they're not actually cured or moderated. But, you know, people, people feel bad when they hear somebody else has cancer, especially somebody in their family. Um, but they don't shun them in the same way. Um, and Alzheimer's, you know, and other mental illnesses just have a much more profound um, stigma attached to them. I suppose part of it is, you know, you're, you're going to actually, when somebody has cancer, you know, you can see them typically um, deteriorate to some degree, you know, sometimes not even that much um, up until the very end. But with Alzheimer's, you're going to see a pretty clear cut change in the person. You know that at some point they're not going to recognize you anymore. You know, you're going to know at some point um, they're just not going to be able to follow any kind of conversation. They're not going to do much, be able to do much of anything. They need to be totally, totally cared for. Um, it doesn't happen the same way usually with, with cancer. 
know, this is really a dread cancer item, but um, I'm not sure there's anything that's more dreaded today than, than the prospect of getting Alzheimer's. You know, it's the end of Alzheimer's. Sonny Kleinfield of the New York Times. Carol Zerniel has another question for you. So when, when you followed uh, Jerry around for a, a couple of years, what, at any point did she talk about uh, feeling like um, an unreliable source of information or that people, you know, did reject her or did turn away uh, because, you know, she couldn't follow a conversation or she had difficulty with words. You know, some of the things that even happen in early stage of Alzheimer's. Did she, did people, some of the people react negatively towards her? There were a few. Um, you know, what, what she was gratified about is you know, she had no idea what sort of reaction she was going to have. You know, she felt pretty confident that, you know, her husband and her relatives would um, rally around her and accept as well. But she really didn't know All right, hold that thought. We're going to find out in a moment what she actually did. You're listening to Sonny Kleinfield, a New York Times reporter, wrote an amazing piece about a woman's journey with Alzheimer's. He's got a great quote at the first part of this story. At the conclusion of that first meeting when we agreed that we wanted to proceed, she wrapped up the conversation by looking at me with her gentle eyes, flashing her smile and saying, well, you better be prepared to have fun. And did we ever, he writes. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. 9.30 a.m., The Answer. We are listening to an amazing story written by Sonny Kleinfield, a New York Times Metro reporter who uh, did an amazing story, and I keep saying amazing, but it truly is, uh, about a woman's journey uh, with early-onset Alzheimer's. And uh, you noted, Sonny, that uh, one of the challenges, of course, is, and you note that early on, uh, there were no outward signs that anything was wrong with her. And when uh, she would tell people at some point she had Alzheimer's, they would say, but she looks so good. Right. That's also a very... um common phenomenon with the disease that, um, you know, at, at the early stage, um, you know, you're, you're forgetful, um, and, you know, we've been forgetful um, once you're past a certain age, and so people tend not to make, take much note of that. Um, also, you know, you're, you're, you're tending to, to compensate as much as you, as you can, and people don't really realize how inwardly how hard you're working to, to deal with memory issues. But um, there's also other things going on because you know, Alzheimer's is a lot more than memory disease. It's also an 
very obvious to other people. And they really go and it's sort of a common reaction. And, and some of it is just, you know, uh, an obvious observation that people make. And some of it may be just to, to be gentle about it. But, you know, they say, you know, there's a little wrong with you. You know, I, I, I forget things too. And, and um, although it may seem like it's reassuring, you know, Jerry and, and, and a lot of other people who have Alzheimer's, you know, sort of resent almost that, that kind of reaction because it makes it seem like, you know, they're, they're, they're making it up, you know, the point of prank. And, you know, they almost have to argue the fact that they have, you know, this horrible disease that nobody would want to have. Um, and, and, and she, she said, you know, she very much wishes people would just sort of ask about, you know, well, you know what are the symptoms you're suffering, you know, how are you dealing with it, rather than trying to did she tell folks she had it? Yes. Yeah, so after the therapist said, "Don't tell anyone," what did she do? Well, she she one thing she did she never went back to the therapist because <laughs> she, she she really got up her back up about that because um, she she's just a big believer that you know you, you don't hide things and she's also um, you know just from her awareness in the healthcare field she's always disliked the fact that there was. Um, around the disease and stigma around the disease, which she was determined from the very beginning that she was going to tell everybody she was going to make some bones about it, and, and if people had a problem with it, people had a problem with it, and she, she was gratified to find out that, that all her friends, you know, were very supportive. There were, there were a couple that sort of let them involved with her, and then they, they happened to be people who were dealing with illness of their own, you know, not Alzheimer's, but, you know, they were, they were, they were dealing with, you know, heart conditions and things like that. They were, you know, they were facing mortality, and, and um, seeing Jerry with what she had on top of what they had, you know, I think just sort of um, just made it all too acute for them. But other than that, you know, everybody um, rallied around her, and, you know, treated her, and, um, and Jim, her husband, the same as ever. I mean, I think it's a big thing she worried about is, it's not so much that they would exclude her, but they would exclude Jim, you know, that, you know, that he would wear the stigma, too, and, you know, think that, you know, it's white, what you had, you know, well, they weren't a, a good fit anymore for dinner parties, or they weren't mm-hmm. a good fit to go out to see a movie with anymore, and, and she worried much more about, you know, how people around her might be treated than she did about herself, and, um, you know, again, she was gratified that she found that most people, you know, just treated her the same as they always treated her. You know, she had as much fun and as much laughter as she had before, um, which reinforced, reinforced in her own mind that, you know, this was the approach to take when you had Alzheimer's. Well, she did, you know, what, as the story goes on and you get towards the, the last section, you talk about how she's, she's, begins to think that there needs to be something for people like her, that there are support programs for the caregivers, but there's very little for the person with Alzheimer's, and she sort of bands together with an, a group of uh, people with mild cognitive impairment and early Alzheimer's, for stage one of the Alzheimer's, and they compare coping strategies like using your iPhone as a reminder and, and little tricks of the trade to help, you know, get through the day and remember things that you might not normally be able to recall, which, you know, I thought was really, I mean, that's, that's kind of new thinking uh, for 
beyond traditional thinking of people with Alzheimer's is, is them solving their own problems and sharing their own best practices. Yeah, exactly. You know, one thing that I mean, she's a very self-sufficient type of person, and she's very much a problem-solving type of person. So as symptoms develop in her, you know, the symptoms of Alzheimer's show themselves in different ways and more or less acutely with different people. But as they appeared in her, she, she would just sort of devise, you know, ad hoc solutions to them, ways, ways to get around them. She would you know, develop, you know, she, she found herself forgetting that all the neighbors on the floor of her apartment building, and she figured out a, a memory trip, trick where she you know, associated names with names of people in her family. To remember the neighbors, and you know, and she, she, you know, she would, uh, um, she used her, her, her smartphone extensively. She would take photographs of the places to, to make sure she could, you know, identify what they were and various other things. And she realized that, um, you know, most too many people she deals with Alzheimer's, they, they immediately go into a stage of dependency. You know, sometimes it's just that they don't know any other way to deal with the disease, and so, so much emphasis we found was really on um, the caregivers and supporting the caregivers and giving them advice on, on how they can take care of somebody with Alzheimer's. But what she was so focused on is how she can, one can prolong the independence of somebody with Alzheimer's while they're still in the early stage by coming up with strategies and coming up with tricks and, and whatnot. Um, and taking a, well, I, I wish my mother had gotten, was able to have been in the same group with, with Jerry because when in her early stages, she kept telling us, there ought to be something that we can do. Where is a class for me? Where can I go to learn more um, and keep me at my best? Uh, and there are some groups, uh, some communities have good uh, groups for early you know, for the people in their early stages, but it's not that common, not yet. And I certainly no. don't think that they're, you know, that they're letting the brainstorming among themselves to share what's working for them, you know, is in the curriculum. So, you know, I, I at that point, as I was reading the story, I was wishing I could rewind the clock and, and you know, help connect my mother to, to other people like her in the community so they could have done that. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things that you know, Jerry has started to do because one of the big things she thinks you know is necessary when you have Alzheimer's is that you still identify a purpose for yourself. You know, you're, you're not suddenly a nobody anymore. You're not without any abilities. You know, you're, not, you're no longer somebody who can't contribute to, to society. And, and um, she bubbled for a while trying to figure out what what can be her purpose, and, and she finally settled on the fact that. Know, that she's been coming up sort of on, on the fly with these strategies that, and that there was a real need for that. And she's been, you know, now through local Alzheimer's groups, um, sort of leading workshops on this, where, you know, and, and she's uh, hoping to get some handbooks published that would um, identify these various strategies that people can, can use, um, especially since, you know, there's a lot of people with Alzheimer's where the disease progressive rather slowly. They can be in the early stage for, you know, years, you know, four, five, six years. Some, you know, some, some people that she knows, and she's been in that stage for almost that long. Um, and so there's a lot of time um, to, to still live a pretty full life, but you, you need strategies to get by. You need to do things in ways you didn't do them before. And 
spread the word on those sort of things. So when you watched her over the two-year period, um, did she use notes like when she went on stage to make a presentation or to speak? Did she have everything lined out in advance, or did she sometimes get help from her husband? You know, we- How did she manage it? Yeah, she, you know, she, she did need to, to, to have notes. You know, like one thing she'd done, they'd, they'd given a number of, of talks together about their journey with Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, and, and she wrote out her part. And she, she hoped that she could speak, you know, pretty much from memory, especially after she did it a number of times. But she found out that she'd read over her script again and again, and it would seem like a new script every time she read it. to tell you, and before we run out of time, I, w- I wanted to say this, that your writing is so powerful and poetic. There, there's one short little paragraph. You talk about her love of hummingbirds and taking pictures of hummingbirds, and you say how she adored her precious birds. It was only the names. She once knew them so well, and now many of them had been rinsed from her memory. What an amazing way to uh, explain what happens. Yeah, how did this affect you, spending this much time with her? How is Sunny today? Well, you know, I, I've, I've been very inspired by her. You know, you know I mean, a lot of people have um, you know, written to me and reacted, um, finding her very heroic and feeling very inspired, um, using the story and helping them cope with somebody with Alzheimer's and giving you know, it you know, I felt the same way. You know, I spent so much time with her that, you know, she just seemed like, you know, she was just another person, you know, with a friend uh, after a while. But, you know, I couldn't help but, you know, when I'm away, away from her, you know, reflecting on what she's going through and, and, and how positive she remained all through this. And so, um, you know, it was remarkable to watch and, from, from my standpoint. Were you able to notice a difference in the two years or was she? did she pretty much stay on the same plateau? You know, she didn't stay on the same plateau, but um, though she's still very high functioning today, um, but I couldn't notice as much of a change as, as she expected to me. You know, I, I might have noticed a, you know, a five percent deterioration in her, and it was maybe a twenty percent deterioration in her. And what she, what she told me um, near the end, when I would ask her about that, she'd say, "You know, I'm, I'm still." I may seem to be the same outwardly. You know, I may seem to be carrying on a conversation the same way, getting through the day the same way, but I'm working a lot harder to produce that, that same 
all internal with her that you know she was working so much. It was much it got more and more exhausting for her to do the same sort sort of thing she had done. I got to stop um, you right there. Unfortunately, we are flat out of time. But uh, is this becoming a book? Um, not expanding it to a book. They're going to the time to publish it as an e-book. Okay. Oh, very nice. It's a wonderful story, and we we really appreciate your time. I'm sorry. We are out of time. We could do this for hours, but yeah, well, that's fine. I... Go ahead. No, I say that's fine. I appreciate very much inviting Thank me on. Thank you, and I hope to uh, talk with you again soon. You take care. Bye bye. Okay. Hello, Sonny Kleinfeld, New York Times Metro Department. Wow. Yeah, it's if you haven't read the article, I really encourage you because I think it's it it's not just about Alzheimer's. I think it, it's a great demonstration for any family that's struggling with caregiving issues and how to gracefully accept them and live with dignity. And uh, it's very powerful. We should put a link up on Caregiver SOS. We should. I yeah. thank you for suggesting that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'll tell you what. I'm going to suggest something else. How about take ten in just a minute with Dr. Jamie Heisman on Caregiver SOS on air. Aren't you Dr. Robin Eikhoff? I think I am. Boy, I haven't seen you in weeks. I've been gone for a little while, but I'm back. And not only that, Ron Aaron and Dr. Robin Eikhoff are back with WellMed Radio. I can't wait. We're going to have a whole bunch of docs on with all of us, and we're going to talk about everything you ever wanted to know about growing old and feeling well. The new and improved WellMed Radio. Get your hand off that soda. WellMed Radio relaunch, June 1st, 5 p.m., 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You're listening to Take 10. We end each of our Caregiver SOS programs with Take 10 on 930 AM. The answer, Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us, a nationally known psychotherapist, an expert on addictions and on caregiving as well. Carol Zerniel is here, and I'm Ron Aaron. So I thought it might be interesting. I I, I saw an article uh, the other day about bad news delivered badly uh, and and whether there's a way around this both for professionals and for caregivers and in families and one of the examples was a woman who noticed a uh, uh, white spot under her tongue she went to the doctor they did a biopsy the nurse called her in about a week and said i want to read you the pathology report which was filled with technical jargon uh, and, and gave a hint that maybe she has cancer uh, the woman asked the nurse, can you explain that to me? She said, no, you'll have to see the doctor, and we have an appointment for you in a week. She had to wait another week, and she goes in, and the doctor says, eh, it's no big deal, don't worry about it. Pathologist was just covering himself. So the question is, is there a good way to deliver bad news? Carol, what do you think? Oh, I think there is. I was just thinking that was a story of of good – it wasn't – it wasn't – it was – it was, it was good, good news. news. It was delivered badly. It wasn't even right. bad news. It right. was delivered badly. But, you know, I think the issue that, you know, for caregivers, you know, I'm thinking about the car key conversation. You right. know, mom and dad, you can't drive anymore. And how badly sometimes we deliver that. Or, um, you know, I came from a family where no one ever told me the bad news. And, you know, you I didn't realize my, no one told me that my aunt had actually committed suicide. It was, a, you know, not a, a close relative. Uh, it was a great aunt had committed suicide, and then I go and ask the family members, right. you know, how she's doing, and they're staring at me like I'm an idiot. And mother's, my mother's, well, I didn't want to worry you, right? 
<laughs> which we do with kids all so the time. So just, yeah, not being good at delivering any kind of news. And it's that fear of doing it badly, and I don't want to worry you. So, Jamie, with all of the news, good news, bad news, and, and just bad communication, I mean, is there a better way for us to communicate bad news that besides not telling them? Yeah, I believe it's also a function of how we ourselves perceive bad news. We as the deliverers of the news, we as the communicators. For instance, let me take uh, palliative care. Um, one of the things that we're doing at WellMed, which again I think is a fascinating uh, process, is the mindfulness work. Is getting people in touch with life and death, and, and getting them comfortable, if you will, with the entire life cycle. Because what I came to find out, not necessarily at WellMed, but across the country with providers is that I believe people with palliative care, which I love, which is actually taking care of people, obviously, who do not want to go through the heroics and want to be as comfortable as possible. But the providers themselves need to be comfortable with the news. They need to be comfortable with the issues of life and death to be able to convey it in a professional environment. So there's two things I would really like to throw out here. One is I think that providers need training, and I think they also need their own therapeutic health and wellness to, to feel comfortable with it. And I also want to um, throw it back to you, Carol, but with the fact that this is really a place where I believe that caregivers should insist, if, if they have even the slightest hint that there's bad news or good news, that they should prepare the people who are about to provide it with the scenario before they provide it about their loved ones. So give me an example of that. Well, you know, if a caregiver goes along with their loved one, they carry, of course, they like to make it in a more personal sense, their mother, father, brother, they know so much about, A, their loved one, but they also know a lot about their care because they're very much involved with, with them. And I think that's what many caregivers like to think they're doing. Well, if that's the case and they're, they're involved with them, they see the progression of an illness. They see also the way their loved one is responding to that illness, um, the compliance or not compliance. And they also know the coping, if you will, like last week we talked about resiliency, the resiliency of the person they're taking care of. So if they know all that and they know that something's coming down the pike, uh, I think they should prepare either with the doctor or with the doc- ask the doctor if they have a clinical social worker or whom will really be delivering this and prepare not just uh, themselves for it, but maybe their, their family. And I'd love to see the caregivers themselves, you know, if news is going to be important to be there. Um, but be able to also, you know, explain to the providers a little bit what they're dealing with before they deal with them. So I, I've heard you say in the past that, like I gave as example, the car key conversation. If if we have to take mom or dad's car keys away because they're no longer uh, able to drive safely, that it should be a third party. You want to call in that doctor, the policeman, you know, the clergy to let the person know they're not going to be driving anymore, so the caregiver can be the good guy. Absolutely, and um, and here's why too. I mean, not just that the messenger gets killed, which we know that the caregivers know that too, and we don't want to be the level of that. But who knows the subject better? I mean, your MD does, your primary care doctor. Um, this particular person will know about the driving if you can't drive or can't drive, or the liabilities. But just like any disease, they they too will know the progression. And so I think you really have to know the person well. And sometimes doctors are going at a rapid rate and too fast to really know well. And this is the beauty of what caregivers can maybe write down a note, a one-page bullet point piece, give it to a social worker there, a nurse, make sure the doctor sees it, uh, prepare for the bad news. But in addition to that, when you 
explain something to somebody to you. You need to have that statistical knowledge, that knowledge that allows them to know that there's things to do, that there's hope out there. You just have to be much you know, better prepared and who can do that better but providers. Then the caregiver's role is to support the provider's uh, information so that they too can now rally around their loved ones and be there for their loved ones and, and not be heavy, if you will, in the situation. So are there instances where the news might be heard better from the loved one than from a professional? You know, certainly there, there is. I don't believe life and death issues uh, are necessarily like that. I, I think um, as far as medical issues, you know, issues, again, that scare people, that their life changes, um, I truly believe you should orchestrate that and prepare that well. You should rehearse that well. You should do it with your doctor. Um, I think that if you have a close enough relationship with the caregiver, the caregiver can talk about intimate things and be the person that you know just hints at things. I don't ever believe that a caregiver should give the directive. I know you don't either. You head up a, an amazing network of caregivers at SOS, and, and, and I don't think it's, if you're not skilled, if you're not trained, um, I, I don't believe you should be the, the provider of information. Not because you're not capable, not because you don't love the person enough, but really the information that you may get back and the questions you may get back, you may be in deeper water than you think if you open that up. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Take 10. That's how we end each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs right here on 930 AM, The Answer. So, you know, I, th- I think a lot of caregivers, and maybe, in, Ron, you were asking the question, how do you deliver bad news, you know, in a, in a better way? Um, but what I hear you saying, Jamie, is that it really takes some thought and preparation. You don't want to be just, you know, res- have a hair trigger response to a bad situation and just barge in and say the first thing off the top of your head. No, it's so true. In fact, what you want to do is, is to recognize the issue, be very mindful, step back. And, you know, in that moment of being able to step back, you'll find power and grace, and you'll find what needs to come to you. Um, I don't think you should react. Um, I think you should really plan on, on information being imparted. Um, and I also think you should do it in a positive way. And oddly enough, I know that's a difficult thing to say when you're talking about life and death issues. But, you know, it's about quality of life. It's not life and death issues in terms of, of what you impart. It's about what the quality is of our lives from now till, till, till the end. And so um, I, don't, I do believe that being mindful about this is the most important thing. And having Bouncing off loved ones, but don't fall prey to the loved one that said, I'll tell them, don't worry. Make sure there's consensus and make sure you have a, a third party, the geriatric care manager, social worker, but preferably also the primary doctor. Well, and I just have to echo, I, I, I over the years, uh, you know, you and I have worked together for a number of years now, and I think that's been some of the best advice that I have heard that's really um, resonated and I think works well is that oftentimes the bad news really does need to be that professional. It needs to be somebody else because then that person can go away and you can go on being the loved one as opposed to that person who ruined my life. That's a good point. Absolutely. And, and you know, and how can the caregiver explain the really quality and credibility and integrity of palliative care? I mean, and those type of decisions. Um, we'll take this up. well-versed. we got to stop you right there. 
we're flat out of time, and we will take that up another day. Maybe we ought to get uh, Dr. Glazier on with us, who is a palliative care expert at WellMed Medical Management. Dr. Jamie Heisman, thank you so much. We'll do Take 10 again at the end of the next Caregiver SOS on Air. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for listening to us on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.